I don't think there are any announcements this morning, so this is good. We'll just get started. Um, I'd like to pray for my friend Cheryl as she uh, gets ready to present this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for this um, group. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word um, and to be together and to um, discuss together the truths from your word. We thank you for Cheryl, who's put much time into preparing for us this morning. We pray that the words that she speaks will be ones that will uh, reflect your heart and will sink deeply into our hearts as we respond to them together. We thank you for um, all of your good gifts to us and pray for your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Is, is that good, Lise? Can you hear me? Okay. Now, hmm. how much close? All right. Should we try it again? Is that good? No. How about that? Any better? No, I'll turn it. Okay. You want me to hold it? <laughs> All right. Can you hear me now? Is that okay? Okay. Good. Good morning. <laughs> I love stories. I love to tell stories. I love to read stories. Um, and I'm thankful that Jesus gave us the parables to help us understand things that are hard for us. I don't know about you, but the 29 verses of Romans 2 were hard for me. So I'd like to begin to consider Romans 2 with a parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15. This is a parable that I return to often. I have a prodigal heart. And I am very well acquainted with the self-righteous elder son. So let's begin to put some faces on Romans 1 and 2. Jesus tells us the story of a father and two sons. The prodigal son decides he does not need his father, his expectations, least of all his rules. He asks for his inheritance and leaves to spend it as he wishes without regard for his father, his father's gift, or his identity as his son. The results of his choices are disastrous. This son's choices give us a glimpse of some of those described in Romans 1, don't they? But there's also an elder brother. He remains at home. He does all that's expected of him. His behavior is honorable. He dwells with his father, eats with him, and works with him until one day he is faced with his wayward brother's return home. This prodigal's repentant and humble. His father welcomes him with every lavish gift he can find. The father celebrates the return of his lost son with grace, forgiveness, unbridled joy, and generosity. 
confronted with this gracious love of the father, the heart of the elder son is revealed. He responds with anger and resentment at the injustice of this celebration of a brother who has dishonored the family and squandered the family's wealth. He answers his father's invitation to join the celebration by reciting for his father the sins of his brother. He holds up his own compliance, obedience, and service as proof of his worthiness. He is a son living in his father's house as an orphan. He does not trust in his father's love for him, but goes about trying to earn his own way. His self-righteousness is nurtured as he compares himself to his younger brother and remembers his own dutiful behavior. His perspective is challenged by his father's reception of his brother. He is believed he deserves, just a minute, (laughs) deserves favor because in his judgment, he has done what is right. He is questioning the grace and kindness and generosity of the father shown to his brother and what it has to say about his version of justice. The grace and kindness given daily by his father are forgotten and go unrecognized in this moment. His narrative places value on his dutiful obedience displacing grace and mercy. He is angry and resentful, and it keeps him apart from his father and the celebration. This elder brother is present with us in Romans 2. It seems when we are confronted with God's grace and unmerited love, we are challenged. We simply believe we are better than we are and do not want to see our need for God's grace. This truth is found throughout the human experience and and literature. In the musical Les Miserables, we meet another Romans 2 character in Jaber, a virtuous man of the law. He encounters the unmerited grace shown to his former prisoner, Jean Valjean, and the restoration and redemption that result. And he reveals his heart in the lyrics to stars. And if you fall as Lucifer fell, you fall in flames. For so it has been, and so it is written on the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. More recently, Wayne Watson sings of his desire for justice in these words. If I were you, I ran this place, there wouldn't be no mercy. No, there wouldn't be no grace. And people who wander off and go astray, I'd make real sure that they would pay. Yeah, that's what I would do if I were you. And if I were you and I ran this town, the righteous would be sitting pretty and the rotten would come tumbling down. Paul is observing the same response to the Lord's patience and kindness amongst the Jews that are expressed in the lyrics to these songs. 
In our chapter, verses four and five, Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's chosen people, the Jews, have been given the law and are now being confronted with the new covenant brought by the Messiah, Jesus. Romans 8 defines that for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So just go back to the brothers for one minute with me. There was repentance from the prodigal. He has been foolish. He's realized his foolishness, left his foolish ways and come humbly back for the forgiveness and the opportunity to be a servant in his father's house. He has given all the privileges of a son, an heir. He comes home to the father. Pretty straightforward, right? Meanwhile, the elder son sings, maybe even shout from outside the celebration, a few of Wayne Watson's lyrics. If I run this place, when people go astray, they should pay. His own sin is one that just isn't as easily detected as it's cloaked in outward obedience. I believe he probably started out wanting to please his father, but keeping track of his accomplishments and comparing himself to another has brought him to this place. He remains an orphan in his father's house. He is separated from his father by his need to be right and his desperate need to be recognized as the one who does right. The father invites him to join him in this celebration of redemption, but he remains apart in his anger and resentment over his father's celebration of another <laughs> and the threat that it represents to his own economy of reward and ultimately justice. This helps us understand Romans 2. The Jews felt exactly the same way. The Gentiles had lived without regard for God or his ways. Romans 1.29 says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. And yet they are being given access to God through his gift of grace in Christ Jesus. How can that be? They have not tithed, nor been circumcised, nor followed the other 613 laws in the Old Testament. They are being grafted in as adopted sons. They are being given sonship through the blood of Jesus. Based with the grace of God extended to the Gentiles, the Jews cling to their laws because they're all that set them apart. And unfortunately, they've chosen to carry out these laws through instructions and judgments 
demonstrating they know them very well, but they do not understand their intent or recognize the one who embodies them. Here we glimpse the elder son, both in the Jews and in us, virtuous and dutiful, but unwilling to enter into the celebration of our father over the loss being found or Christ's redemption being offered to everyone. In this, we refuse the gospel of grace. Our loving, patient father has waited in anticipation for the fullness of redemption that he might restore the lost and broken as sons. But the desire to be honored for our work can separate us from his glory and bring judgment upon us. Before we go further in Romans 2, let's take a look at the author. It is Paul who identifies himself in Philippians 3, 4 to 7, as follows. Though for myself, I have at least grounds to rely on the flesh. If any other man considers that he has or seems to have reason to rely on his physical or outward advantages, I have still more circumcised when I was eight days old of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the observance of the law, I was a Pharisee. As to my zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And by the law standard of righteousness, I was proven to be blameless. No fault was found in me. But whatever former things I had that might have been gains to me, I have come to consider them loss for Christ's sake. It is this Paul who is reminding fellow Jews of the bigger picture, eternity. He is lifting their eyes to see beyond themselves to a holy God. He is reminding us that we will be face to face with him and his holiness. The intent of God's kindness and patience is to lead us to repentance, that we might be prepared for his judgment and enter into a relationship with our holy God forever. God shows his kindness and patience to all without partiality. It is given to everyone, just as his judgment will be over all, and he will judge justly. This is certain. We are mourned that we must not presume upon his patience and kindness, continuing to create our own self-serving systems of judgment that are built to earn the praise of men rather than God, but rather rejoice that God's law, which we could not fulfill, has been fulfilled in Christ. We are recipients of his free gift and justified by it, thus facing the day of judgment in his righteousness alone. Paul warns 
them that they are storing up wrath for the day of righteous judgment as their hearts are hardened and unrepentant. Paul knows the danger in this position and God sent him to warn them. Pretty cool, huh? Their reliance on the practice of outward circumcision and the appearance of adherence to the laws when their hearts remain uncircumcised brings judgment and separation from the Father. Paul is giving us a very complete picture of our sinful hearts and the eternal cost of these practices. (laughs) In chapter 2, he pleads with us to look at our helpless position before God. Paul tried to reason his own way of escape from this judgment, and he realizes we too are desperate to find a way of escape, and that we will try and cleverly devise our own set of standards. James 1, 23 and 24 says, those who possess the law and know right from wrong have been given the law, the moral law to provide a mirror by which we can see ourselves accurately. And Romans 3.20 tells us the law was given that men may recognize their sin against a holy God. We who have been given this understanding have a choice in our response to this truth. We can recognize our helplessness, our need to be rescued by the patient and gracious love of our Father. Or we can take our perverted versions of right and wrong, our take on the judgment of God, and bludgeon others with it. Unfortunately, Paul's observing the latter. The warning is clear. If you are so well acquainted with the law as to use it to judge another, you remove all escape for yourself. You prove you know right from wrong, so you're obliged to obey the same law that you condemn another with, or you condemn yourself. This makes sense, but as we consider this criteria, we realize our way of escape is disappearing fast. Paul is very thorough in his opening argument, establishing the consistent disregard of the Gentiles for God's law and the inconsistent application by the Jews of his law. He has gone to serious lengths to help us see our sinful hearts in the midst of seemingly virtuous living. Now, this word sin is offensive in our world. The idea of describing ourselves as sinners is, well, rather distasteful. God knows we often don't even recognize our own sin, thus the mirror. And when we do, we are desperate to justify our own behavior. A worldview that acknowledges a holy God who is just (laughs) and judges our sin righteously is no longer a framework accepted by our society. We want justice for sure without naming right and wrong. We deny any judgment of what is right, especially by another, because we've been encouraged to allow each other to decide our own truth. We've developed an elaborate set of explanations and justifications for our immorality, self-centeredness, idolatry, and compromises. 
And we've sought to answer the outcomes with a new vocabulary and definitions. Yet we continue to long for real justice, don't we? Perhaps because we've experienced and observed the injustices born out of judgment by another who cannot and does not keep the law that they are imposing on another. We make rules that we can't keep and hold others up to them. We are truly hopelessly deceived. Paul reminds us that our self-righteousness is causing God's name to be maligned among the Gentiles. The consequences of our self-righteousness and judgments are dire for both us and for others. <laughs> Throughout Romans 2, Paul has taken time to unwrap the danger for us in trying to establish ourselves through outward behaviors to be worthy in some way of God's favor. He sees the chosen ones of God taking liberties and privilege to establish themselves as the elite. Paul is taking on an establishment here and leading them toward the truth found in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Romans one sinner is as clear cut as the prodigal, easily identified, easily condemned. The idea that he who has physical proof in his circumcision and his belonging to God and is found innocent of breaking the rituals and traditions is equally in need. It's a tough sell. Paul is this man, and he knows that only by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit did he come to understand the emptiness of boasting in these things. He addresses the dangers that lie beyond them. Pride in our outward doings grows the roots of anger, bitterness, and resentment against a God whose patience and kindness shown without partiality bring eternal reward to all who accept Jesus' sacrifice, first the Jew and then the Gentile. This earth-shattering truth brings freedom from the law and abundant joyous living. <clears throat> unless you are caught by the fearful resentment that all your efforts and hard work to do right have not brought you the recognition or position you deserve, and you are unwilling to accept the Father's invitation to come. This is the tragic position of the elder brother. He has had the outward appearance of being a son, and yet his heart trusts not in the love of the Father, but in his own goodness. <laughs> From a position of self-righteousness, we are hopelessly unable to see our need for grace or give it to others. In Titus 3, 4-7, we read, 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, to man appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but because of his own pity and mercy by the cleansing of the new birth and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out so richly upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he did it in order that we might be justified by his grace and that we might become heirs of eternal life according to our hope. We grieve for those living with all the burdens of the law and in bondage to it without grasping its purpose to lead us to repentance. We are reminded that it is only by having our eyes illumined and our hearts open to his Holy Spirit that we understand the lengths to which God would go to free us from our bondage by offering his only begotten son as payment for our sin. It is a free gift of God, but we must relinquish our righteousness as filthy rags emptying our hands to receive it. So this is the place where the elder brother and Romans 2 have led us. Will we continue to rehearse our righteousness and discount the grace and mercy we are offered? Or perhaps accept Christ's righteousness as our own, rejoice in it, and continue to seek some merit of our own? thus remaining in the very bondage from which he has set us free. Paul speaks to us in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving your son for us, even when we did not know that we needed your gracious gift. May your kindness and patience lead us toward you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.